Welcome to This is Growth, the podcast where we help you build and scale modern customer success organizations. I am so thrilled about this month's conversation. We are touching on a topic that I know everyone in customer success battles with, change management. Whether it's helping drive change for your customers so that they can adopt your products, or for your team when you're introducing a new way of doing things, and even for your company as you grow and evolve as a business, everyone in CS is a change agent. And I have an incredible guest this month to lead us through this conversation. My dear colleague, Margaret Harrison. She is a senior CS leader here at HubSpot with a master's in change management. We've worked together over the last year in the rollout of some great automations for the HubSpot CS team. And I can tell you, we could not have succeeded without her guidance on how to navigate the change. This will be an insightful conversation for anyone in customer success. So let's dive in. Hi, Margaret. It's so good to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me. I've been so looking forward to this conversation for a little while now. Uh, It's so good to talk to you in front of all of the audience and the guests because we meet fairly often in HubSpot, but it's great to have a space to have this conversation. Uh, For the folks that don't know Margaret, she's a senior manager here at HubSpot, um, leading our customer success team. And most notably, and recently, she just finished a master's in change management. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, It was a lot of work and a lot of time, but I'm so proud to be on the other end of it um, and had a, a really wonderful experience throughout. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's no mean feat to study at the same time as you're working full time in such a fast paced company. So yeah, you should you should be very proud. Thank you. And you did something similar, Daphne, I believe. So congrats to you too, um, when you graduated. Oh, thank you. Margaret, um, I started this podcast by asking people to share their stories. So before we dive in the depths of change management, tell us, how did you get into customer success? It's a good question, and it's a unique path. So I'm, I'm excited to tell the story. Um, I'll actually, if you don't mind, kind of start back at the very beginning of my education phase, I went to a small, small liberal arts uh, college in the state of Maine called Bates. And it was there that I studied English literature and poetry um, for all four years. But throughout college to help pay for school, I actually worked as a student fundraiser. And in this capacity, I spent hours every week, morning and nights, calling parents and alumni of the college asking if they'd consider making a donation to the school. And this was really my first foray, Daphne, into working with a group of people towards what felt like a shared mission. Um, And interestingly enough, it was also this experience that really influenced my first job out of college, which was fundraising at a local cancer hospital in Boston called Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So I actually ended up spending six years at that organization helping to raise money, plan events, and nurture the relationships that we had with our donors. Um, And during this time period, I became really, really interested in event planning. I was planning fundraising events for Dana-Farber, but I became really intrigued by the idea of planning social events like dinner parties and weddings. 
So during my time at Dana-Farber working in the fundraising department, I set out to build my own wedding planning company. Um, So I knew very little about the industry. Um, So I just started by working with Boston-based florists, which is where I was living. I just literally messaged them on Instagram and asked if they'd let me work for free during the summer. And as you may imagine, um, they said yes. And so I actually had the opportunity to spend an entire summer installing floral designs, constructing arrangements, delivering bouquets, you name it, I did it. Um, And it was once, you know, at once exhilarating and exhausting. If you've ever been to a wedding, you can probably imagine how much work goes into it. And I really felt that firsthand. But I remained really interested in launching this wedding planning business. So anytime I would meet somebody, I would say, hey, I'm Margaret. Um, I'm going to become a wedding planner. So at the end of that summer, one of my dear florist friends actually approached me about one of her couples whose wedding planner had dropped out. The couple was to be married in a month and they needed a wedding coordinator. So I was absolutely petrified, but I said yes and just trusted that I would figure everything out later. Um, And it was really that risk to which I owe my entire business. Uh, I owe my business to that couple and to that florist and and the risk that they took on me. So I ended up coordinating the wedding. I built a website using photos from the event. I specifically chose photos that didn't look like they were from the same event. So it looked like I had uh, facilitated more than one wedding. And I started booking gigs. Um, And it was such a fun chapter in my life. And I'm talking about it here on this podcast, because interestingly enough, it really was the experience that led me to HubSpot, to my current job and customer success. I knew after a summer of wedding coordination and building my own small business that I wanted to work at a smaller, a younger company and one that was really constantly changing. Um, I wanted to expose myself to an entirely new environment, a new industry, a new job, because I knew that that was where I would learn the most. So after months and months of research, I found HubSpot, um, which is, as we know, a Boston-based software company. And as it turned out, a former Dana-Farber colleague of mine, Tim Cormier, worked at HubSpot in customer success. Stephanie, you probably know Tim. He was here for quite a while. I reached out to him and uh, we met for coffee and Tim is the reason that I secured a job at HubSpot and I'll be truly forever grateful to him for taking a chance on me. So if you're listening to this, Tim, thank you. Um, So I was hired as a customer success manager in the small to medium sized business segment in March of 2018. And having just pivoted industries, I had so much to learn. Um, But I was really, really excited for the challenge. And if Any of you listeners have ever pivoted industries, you'll know how humbling it is to come from an environment that you know so very well and travel into an environment that you don't know at all. Um, And so really what I did was worked as hard as I could and focused on trying to have a positive impact on people around me. Um, And I distinctly remember I had this one memory in a conference room at HubSpot on the third floor. Tim Cormier said to me, the only constant at HubSpot is change. And that's what did it for me. That one sentence, it lit this spark in me to learn more about change management. And um, since that conversation, I've learned that the most successful companies are those that are agile. This is what we'll talk about today, Daphne. They're capable of pivoting even when it's hard. Um, But what's so fascinating about that reality is that people, we, are inherently change resistant. 
And it's not our fault. It's just the way that we're wired. And if we think about for just a moment, our fight or flight instincts change triggers this sort of response on a subconscious level. And um, Ronard Heifetz, who's a professor at Harvard, wrote, we don't fear change, we fear loss. And so all of that is to say I got really curious about how to make change easier for people. I wanted to know how businesses might manage change in a way that inspires the people that need to do the changing, um, in a way that instills a greater sense of comfort and trust, in a way that helps people grow even when it's hard. And I knew that I couldn't figure that on my own. So I went to school. As you mentioned, I got a master's degree in change management. Um, and since that day and in March of 2018, I've since become senior manager at HubSpot in the corporate segment. So I now have my master's degree and have developed a, a real passion for change management. And I'm really thrilled to be chatting with you today about that. Wow. Oh my God. I did not know you had a wedding planning business. That is so cool, Margaret. And I love how you kind of took a chance on yourself and you were so courageous and bold in, in how you went about it. It just sounds so exciting and also explains so much about you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephanie. That means so much to me. Yeah. I mean, talk to me more about what is change management and why why is it important for companies, especially customer success teams, to be thinking actively about this? Such a good question. And I feel like the best place to start in answering that is first getting curious about what do we even mean by organizational change? So according to business review, org change refers to the way in which a company, a business alters any component of its organization. So it can be small, it can be medium, it can be large, any change. It could be a change to its incentives package, its technology, reporting structures, enablement, resource all allocation, you name it. But what's interesting about change, Daphne, is that most changes can be placed into one of two categories, adaptive change or transformational change. Adaptive changes are small changes. They're incremental changes that organizations adopt to address needs that evolve over the course of time. They're really happening all the time. They are minor modifications and adjustments that managers and leaders fine tune and implement to execute business strategies. So throughout processes, leaderships may add, subtract, or refine these adaptive changes to ensure that the larger visions are capable of coming to fruition. So an example of an adaptive change is that an organization upgrades their computer operating system from Windows 8 to Windows 10, or that the compensation team rolls out market adjustments to salary bands. So smaller tweaks. And then transformational changes typically have a much larger scope and scale than adaptive changes. They often involve a shift in both mission and strategy, company or team structure, people and organizational performance, or business processes as a whole. And because of their scale, these changes often take a really substantial amount of time and energy to enact, both on the part of the people developing the change and the people that are responsible for embodying the change. 
And oftentimes these transformational changes are um, pursued in response to external forces, such as the emergence of a new competitor or issues impacting a supply chain. Um, And this is actually, Daphne, what we're seeing in the tech industry right now. The economy is requiring us in tech to implement transformational changes fairly rapidly. And the reality is that it's hard. So that's what organizational change is. Organizational change management is the process of guiding organizational change to successful resolution. That's the simplest way to say it. Rolling out change. It typically includes three major phases. Preparation. So figuring out what you need to do. Implementation. Rolling out the change. And follow through. Reinforcing that change. I actually prefer a lighter and simpler model. Um, it's called direct the rider, motivate the elephant and shape the path. Um, and that comes from a book called switch by Dan and uh, Chip Heath, their brothers. We can include that in the follow-up resources, but it's basically this notion that, um, as human beings, we have two independent sides of our brain. One is the emotional side and the other is the rational side. And NYU psychologist Jonathan Haidt uses this compelling analogy to explain both sides. The emotional side is the elephant. The rational side is the rider. The rider of the elephant, kind of from an outside perspective, looks like they are in charge. But when there's a disagreement between the elephant and the rider, the elephant usually wins. So said differently, our emotions can easily win out. And this is one of the reasons that transformational change can feel so challenging. And in that book, Switch, that I just referenced, Chip and Dan Heath build on this analogy of the elephant and the rider um, by talking about how we as change practitioners need to direct the rider, that rational side of our brain that's responsible for planning and directing and motivating the elephant, that emotional side of our brain that prefers quick gratification over long-term wins, um, but can really get things done in the short term. Wow. I actually, as you're speaking and explaining this this analogy of the rider and the elephant, I, I'm thinking back to different times when I've had to either adapt to change, so I was uh, in the receiving end of change, or lead change within the team and I tend to be a really rational person and almost like suppress that emotional uh, side when when I'm thinking about change that's occurring to me. Whenever I'm rolling out change for other people, um, I, I find it hard to just bring that emotional element and consider everyone's emotions, right? Because, for example, in a team of like five people, you might have one person that's concerned for performance and another person that's concerned about their time balance or, you know, that there's just so many things to to worry about. Do you have any tips on how to think about that emotional side and what are some of the, the ways you can plan for for the emotion that the change causes? Yeah, it's it's such a good question, Daphne. It's something I think about a lot. And I think I think the first thing that we as leaders need to remind ourselves is it's not people's fault. It's this intuitive response that we have to change we are inherently resistant to it. And that can feel, that can transpire as a really 
emotional reaction. Um, in that book that I that I reference, Switch, the authors talk about some common kind of misconceptions during change management. And I want to talk about that right now because I feel like it's it's really related to your question. Um, as change practitioners, as leaders that are responsible for implementing change, we might see um, laziness. What laziness actually is, is fatigue. And we can talk about that a little bit more. We might look around our team and we see resistance, Daphne, which is a little bit what you're talking about as it relates to the emotions that bubble up in people when changes are rolled out. Resistance is actually often a lack of clarity. And so as change practitioners, we need to kind of look at what we're seeing, but be able to translate it into an understanding of what's actually happening. So when I say what might seem like laziness is often fatigue, that's because self-control is really, really tiring. So Daphne, question for you. Have you ever noticed how tired you are after attending a networking event? Oh, yeah, 100%. Especially I am an introvert and I definitely spend energy when I go to events like that. So I feel exhausted when I come out of a networking event or a conference or that kind of situation. That's exactly it. Um, and we often describe that feeling as, oh, I'm so tired because I was on for three hours. What we mean without saying it by on is we had to implement a really high level of self-control for three hours during that networking event. The same is true for someone that is trying to build a healthier routine and they try and go to the gym um, twice a week for three months. By doing that, by setting that goal for themselves, they're committing to a high level of self-control. And the reality of self-control is that it's exhausting. It fatigues the brain and the body. And change is exactly the same. Because by rolling out change, we're saying to people, oh, you can no longer do what you used to do. Which is just a different way of saying, you can no longer operate on autopilot. And by saying that to people, by asking that of them, we're asking them to implement a high level of self-control. And it gets tiring. So you might notice, Daphne, as a leader, as a change practitioner, that you'll roll out a change and maybe there's a high level of adoption, you know, from the very from the very beginning for a short period of time. Then people start to stop uh, embodying the change. And this is because they got tired. They're fatigued. And so all of that is to say to assist people in overcoming. Um, or even preventing their fatigue, we will want to motivate them throughout the process. And this is where we talk about the elephant, motivating them throughout the process, reinforcing the change by doing things like sending encouraging notes, praising good behavior, showcasing the impact of the choices that these people are making. All of this can help keep people motivated. Wow. I uh, Sorry to cut you, but I never actually thought about the feeling that I get when a change is rolled out and how tired I get on the perspective of I am tired because I'm not operating in autopilot. I'm having to think and reason to actually take the steps. That's so insightful. I love that. 
I'm so glad it resonates. And that's, that's exactly what is so interesting to me about change management is what appears to be happening on the surface with people's behavior isn't actually what's happening. What's happening is, is a intuitive response to the environment, to be, to what's being asked of them. And as leaders, if we can educate ourselves about what's actually happening, witnessing the behavior, translating it into reality, then we can more effectively support people through these changes. The other element I started talking about when you asked about how leaders can navigate all of the emotions that bubble up when change is rolled out was what might seem like resistance is often a lack of clarity. And this is really, really important. So sometimes people don't adopt change simply because they don't understand what's required of them. You are a leader, Daphne. So you've definitely been in the meetings where the change is designed. You as a leader in that moment are, you're really close to the change. You understand it deeply. Then what happens is leaders kind of come out of that change management cave and they espouse the plan to everybody else who's never heard of it before. And so people who are being asked to embody this change might feel confused. So what we can do as change practitioners is offer clarity. And it sounds so simple and it is, and that's the beauty of it. By sending shorter, clearer, more succinct emails, by making the ask really simple, we can help people get on board with the change more naturally. So long emails that people don't necessarily have the time or the energy to read, complex charts that aren't intuitively understandable. These are some of the examples of how change can feel more confusing than it is clear. And so an example of this in the customer success industry is if the leadership team wants customer success managers to engage with more customers, they might say something as simple as, we are rolling out a calls per day target. We are now asking you to have three calls per day. That directive can be so helpful because it is clear and easy to understand. That doesn't necessarily mean that it will be easy for CSMs to adopt, but it will help with the resistance component because the directive is so easy to understand. Yeah, this is really interesting because obviously in customer success, one, we have a pretty young industry where we are evolving our practices and how we do customer success all the time. We have new technologies that are disrupting how we do customer success all the time. So there's so much change for us. But then we also have the other end of this, which is we are change drivers for our customers. Our customers are buying our technologies, our products, our services to actually help them change and transform their organizations. So customer success managers are sometimes put in that driving seat or at least that advisory seat where they are asked to help a customer navigate change. 
How do you how do you think about that and and the role of the customer success manager in in working with their customers with change management? That's such an important question. And I, as I mentioned at the beginning, used to be a CSM. I was a CSM at HubSpot for almost four years. And so I can attest to the fact that that is true. Uh, as a CSM, you are working with your customers on a regular basis to influence their decisions, influence their usage, influence their outcomes. And what's particularly tricky about this is one of the key roles of a CSM is to influence, but they don't have a ton of authority because they're not actually employed at their customer companies. They're not actually part of that team. But there are small ways in which CSMs, people in a CSM-like role, can influence without a lot of authority. And so as a leader, a leader of CSMs, I manage a team of 10 CSMs in the corporate segment. I think it's really important to educate the CSMs on my team about change management. Um, So most recently there was a, a change rolled out at HubSpot, which actually included a call target and to support CSMs through the uh, adoption of that change. I led a change management training. I helped them understand why change resistance exists. Very similar to the conversation we're having today. And what I realized after that Daphne was, oh, the lessons that I offered them during this training will actually empower them to help drive change within their customer teams too. So empowering them with some of these tactics, um, some of these facts about what change management looks like, how it can work effectively, I think can empower them to influence without high levels of authority. Yeah, I love that. And going back to what you said in about the communication piece where, you know, send clear, concise messages, be brief, be short, be to the point, make it as intuitive as possible. Like, I don't know if many customer success professionals, uh, customer enablement professionals are thinking about their communication to their customers from the perspective of change management. You know, we we write a lot of knowledge-based articles and we have consulting calls and we have um, Loom videos that we record for our customers. How much of that is bite-sized and concise enough to help drive change forward without actually overwhelming customers? Wow, what an important question. And I'm so glad you're asking this because it's reminding me of a quote that I heard in grad school and I'm blanking on the person that said it. So we'll have to include that in the follow-up resources, but it is something to the tune of ask me to write a 10 page essay. Give me an hour. Ask me to summarize that 10 page essay into one page. Give me a day. Ask me to summarize that one page summary into two sentences. Give me a week. And the, point of that quote is that it actually takes longer. It takes a deeper understanding of what you're trying to say, to say it succinctly, to say it with gravity, to say it clearly. 
And I think that's something as leaders that we can really lean into when coaching our teammates is in order to direct and coach and guide your customers effectively and clearly, you really need to know what it is you're asking them to do. And some of that comes with experience, comes with time and exposure to different types of customer scenarios and outcomes. And some of it is just a matter of preparation. But on a society level, I think we really praise long emails because it is perceived as someone put a lot of time and preparation into writing and sending that. But in reality, it's much harder to convey an idea in a paragraph. Yeah, I I am a big fan of using simple words that anybody can understand instead of packing up jargons into your emails and your uh, content. There is nothing that puts me off more than to listen to something and to understand all the words, but when they're put together, not really know what somebody's talking about. And I do think that what you see, the people that are um, brightest and that can get their message across the the best, they tend to use the simplest words like plain English and and really be able to explain complex topics by using simple language. One pet peeve I have, and I have to say that this is something that I know a lot of CSMs do, is the follow-up email that is link after link after link after link with a bunch of things for me to read. If I am your customer and I have a direct point of contact with you and we just had a conversation about something, I want I want to come out on, on the other end with like the the like two or three things that are most important and that are going to help me move the needle forward. If I have an email with a, a hundred bullet points for things to read and see and watch, I just don't do it. It's just too many things for me to actually tend to. So I think that that concisiveness and being able to summarize and give the customer the package of here is the most important thing that you need to do and here's how you do it. Uh, I think that's really powerful and, and keeps the customer moving forward and affecting that change that we're talking about. That's exactly right. And I think one of the reasons that's so important, Daphne, is because, like we mentioned earlier, CSMs aren't employed at their customers' companies. And so what's actually happening is a CSM will meet with their point of contact, relay information, provide advice, and then that point of contact is turning around and has to relay that information to the rest of their team. And so in order for CSMs to best equip their points of contact with the ability to do that effectively, they need to provide them with clear direction that they can basically just repeat. And so that's why the long emails with a ton of links is challenging for points of contact because they then need to open that email, read all of the documentation, interpret it, translate it, turn around and share what they believe to be true with their teams. And so the best CSMs out there can say, here's what you need to know and here's how I would recommend you convey that notion. And then the POC has exactly what they need to drive the outcomes that they want to drive. Oh, that's great advice. And Margaret, do you have advice for people who are 
dealing with their customers or their teams and they are resisting change. You know, there's a new initiative, a new product or a new way of doing something and they are looking at the team and just feeling that people are not buying into it. Like how can you how can you turn it around? Yeah. If I had to summarize my advice in three bullet points, since we're talking about the importance of clarity, I would say um, adapting people's resources or environments can be really helpful. So what looks like a people problem is often a situation problem. So if you adapt the environment, shape the path, people are more likely to behave differently motivating people to stay energized about the change will help them overcome that fatigue that we talked about and being incredibly specific about the new behaviors that you need these people to adopt will help them know how to embody the change. When we talk about customer success, CSMs are usually working, like you said, with a POC on the other side who's responsible for driving this forward. But in so many cases, the decision to adopt that tool or that service has come from above them and they haven't even bought into the change yet. They, they are part of the change. They're in the middle of it. Any tips there on how to work with a POC that like isn't bought into the company change that they're trying to, to lead that's a good question. I think the most important element to that is getting to know the point of contact with whom you're working. What is their role? What are they measured on? What are their strengths? What are their preferences? Who do they report to? Who do they manage? Using that information to find a way to pair the tool with the point of contacts, priorities, strengths, and um, kind of projects. By putting those two things together like puzzle pieces, you're making it more natural for your point of contact to feel compelled to use the tool. And what we're really talking about here is motivated. So figuring out what motivates your point of contact and adapting your talk tracks, your positioning accordingly. Yeah, that's great advice to actually think about the persona and not just the business. Uh, yes. I love that. Uh, Margaret, I mean, obviously change management is something that um, we are all dealing with, like you said, there's change everywhere. The world is changing, uh, the economy is changing, like just change is a constant. There are people out there, especially product-led growth companies, who are taking the human out of the equation, right? They're like, here's the system, here's content for you, um, go and manage your own change. Do you think it's possible to use technology to manage change effectively? What a good question. My intuitive response is by leveraging technology, I think you can make change easier. Perhaps there's some elements of 
the communication, the reinforcement that can be automated through the, through the utilization of, of technology. But I, I struggle to see a world in which we use only technology to manage change. And the reason for that, Daphne, is that at the center of change are humans. And humans, like we talked about at the very beginning, are full of emotion and experiences and habits and preferences. And that just can't be automated. And so I I see a world in which there's this combination, this bringing together of technology to help with some of the processes and human beings to help with the motivation, to help with the clarity. Does that resonate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the other thing that's playing in my mind is also the motivation of the the people buying this this tool maybe that, that you're creating or, or the service. I mean, if you have a group of people that are completely bought in and they have already agreed that this is the way forward and they're all excited and like that emotion that we talk about, that that is kind of out of the equation because all these people are super aligned and the change is literally just a technological change or a process change that I think that technology can really help. But is that emotional part that you talk about, the elephant, that is the part that I, I struggle to see um, succeeding if you take the human completely out of the equation. And of course, like in, in customer success management, we have um, higher touches of customer success where you have a dedicated resource that will help people navigate the change and way more touchless digital type of customer success uh, models where you don't have so much of that. But somebody, someone is driving that. Whether we are helping or not, the human is there and the change is affecting humans. So I, I tend to agree with you that the technology can enable and help us fast track and help us understand the data behind the change and if it's happening in the way that we think, all of that kind of stuff. And I think it's really important to have that. But I personally, I don't see a world where we take the human out of the change. We're completely aligned. And it, and it reminds me of what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the two types of change, the adaptive versus transformational. And it's that transformational change that, in, in my mind, really benefits from the human component of it. Now that we're touching back into that adaptive or transformative, I imagine that there are mistakes that change agents make in thinking a change is adaptive when truly it's transformational. Is that something that happens and how can people maybe prevent that mistake from happening? I love that question, Daphne. The answer is absolutely yes. I've witnessed it. I've read about it. I'm sure you have too. And the, the most important thing to say here is that is the fault of nobody. It, in uh, companies, we're often asked to move really quickly. And um, our, the result of that speed can be interpreting a change to be smaller than it actually feels 
to the people being asked to change. And so in order to prevent that sort of misinterpretation from happening, what change practitioners can do is talk to the people that they're asking to change before they roll out the change. Get a clear understanding from them. Why are you making this decision? Why are you following this process? What would it feel like to you to pivot and do this instead? What resources would you need? What blockers would you experience? What concerns would you have? Using all of that information, the change practitioner can inform um, the change rollout and also confirm what type of change it is. Yeah. I wonder how many people skip that step. They just think this is a small change. It's an easy peasy thing. Let's just keep moving. Let's just go for it. And then it explodes in their face when everybody is unhappy about it or worried. And like you said, I've seen that happening in organizations I've worked at. I've seen that happening in HubSpot. I've probably been the uh, the culprit of thinking that before. And I think like just being really conscious, like you said, about before you roll it out, to do that discovery phase where you have those conversations when you integrate the people uh, that you're hoping to affect change um, with to integrate them into the process. So I, I think this is a, a really good reminder for people that not to just rush into it, to, to take that into account. I couldn't, more, I couldn't agree more, Daphne. And it um, reminds me of the, the last class that I took in school was organizational design. And I remember one of the first slides in the first class was, Organizational design is not the same as organizational change. And their point in underscoring that concept was that in order to roll out a meaningful change, you need to go through a thorough design process. And that design process includes talking to people, interviewing people, surveying people, observing people, and by gathering all of that information and allowing it to inform the change that you make will ultimately result in a more effective change management process. There's a rule of thumb, you know, a a saying that's very popular, which is you only move as fast as your slowest part. In your experience and your studies, have you experienced that that is reality? You know, when, when you're going through change, the people who are laggards are defining the pace of change? What a great question. Um, The book that I keep referencing, which I hope everyone that's listening to this read, talks a lot about that. The recommendation that these authors make is to spotlight the people that are adopting the change effectively rather than focusing your energy and resources on the people that are not. And by doing that, you're helping the people who are not adopting the change look over and see that the change is possible, that there are people that are adopting it effectively and that they can too adopt this change. So what I would recommend is that you, as a change practitioner, that we actually focus and spotlight the people that are doing it really well. They're the people that define the speed of change. 
Really interesting. I think many managers can fall on the trap of focusing on the people who are not adopting the change and spending all of their energy there. And then they don't necessarily celebrate the small wins or the, the behaviors that they're trying to drive. So yeah, I think that's a great call out. Margaret, I mean, you've given us so much to think about. If we need to uh, take your advice of condensing, what are the few things that somebody can do today to start implementing good change management practices, either in their organization or with their customers? I would recommend that everybody uh, read the book uh, by Chip and Dan Heath, Switch, because it emphasizes how possible it is to manage change without a lot of structural authority, without a lot of resources. So if you're the type of leader that doesn't have a lot of structural authority or resources, managing change effectively is still possible. And in doing that, you'll, you'll learn that the three keys to managing successful change is adapting people's resources and environments, motivating people so that they stay energized about the change and being incredibly specific about the new behaviors that you want people to adopt. Margaret, this has been an amazing conversation. I could probably talk to you for another three hours about the examples of where change has gone wrong or right and dissecting it. This is all so, so interesting and so relevant. But I'm going to wrap us up here because I think we have given our audience a lot to think about. We have given them a book to read. <laughs> so... I want to thank you so much for your time and for lending your expertise. This has been an amazing conversation. The feeling is so mutual, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to support the podcast, make sure to hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're feeling generous, please share with your colleagues or friends. That's the best way to help me spread the word. And finally, if you're loving this content, don't forget to sign up to the This Is Growth newsletter. It's a weekly email that hits your inbox on a Friday with practical tips on how to build and scale modern customer success organizations. Thank you for listening and I see you next month.